Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be reviewing the Dane and Dan opening to the debate. I don't think I've done it already. Someone's like, did you ever have a review on that debate? I was like, uh, I think I did, but then like, I don't think it exists. And so I think I watched it and I said, oh, maybe I should review this someday. And then it just like never happened. And so we're going to jump in and take a listen to the Dane and Dan, their opening to see what they say, if they have arguments, if they have good arguments, and uh, just do a pretty thorough review. We'll see how that works. All right, uh, Dane and Dan. So it's funny. Um, I put a picture of Dane Cook on on the thumbnail of this uh, this uh, podcast, and uh, Roddy says evening, evening Roddy. Yeah, so Dane Cook is like the worst comedian I know, like even worse than like an Amy Schumer of the world. Back when I was a single guy, I was uh, trying to attract this lady, uh, this girl, and uh, she was a pretty attractive girl. But then she's like, hey, you know who's really, really funny? Dane Cook. And then she's like, uh, listen to this. And then she showed me some audio and his joke was like, I'm going to get a truck. It's going to be a dump truck. And then all my friends are going to be in the back and I'm going to throw candy in there and it's going to roll. I'm like, what? What is this? This is not even comedy. What's all attraction to this lady? Maybe not all attraction, but uh, liking Dane Cook is pretty dismal for comedy. But this is a different Dane. So uh, we are in luck today. No Dane Cook. All right, Dane, tell us all about it. Okay. Uh, Dane, you are good to go. When you start talking, I'm going to go ahead and put up your timer. Awesome. Thank you, Cole. The question before us today is this. Does the Bible teach that God has exhaustive knowledge of the future? I respond to this question with a resounding yes. God does know the future perfectly because God is a God of infinite knowledge. The Bible says this explicitly in Psalm 147.5. We read that God's understanding is infinite. The word infinite. So uh, that's, let's uh, just evaluate that claim on the basis of the claim. There are infinite sets that don't have all data points in it. Okay, so like X plus 2 is an infinite set of numbers, but it's not going to have every other number. It's only going to have, have half the numbers, even though it's still an infinite set. And so when you start playing with infinities, weird things start happening. And it, it's not obvious that even if God is a God of infinite knowledge, it must contain all data points within his set of knowledge. So um, the, the, his first claim is tenuous. It's very speculative. And it's very forceful of the text. It's like, is the, is the biblical author, when they're writing that, this is what they have in mind. They're like, okay, God has the infinite propositional knowledge, which means um, not a set number of facts, but all facts that exist into infinity, past and present. And that's what it means by infinite knowledge. I, I don't think that's what's going on in context. Uh, it was really funny. I was, I was dealing with an individual today who, when God gave David all King Saul's wives, he's like, oh, that's just for David to take care of. Well, the context is that David had an affair with Bathsheba. And uh, he had sex with a woman who wasn't his wife. And uh, Samuel comes in and lambasts him. And he's, he says, you know what? There, there, there's a parable of a shepherd. And he had this one sheep that he really loved. And then a rich guy came and took that sheep away. And he says, in that context, he says, I gave you all of, of uh, Saul's wives. I would have given you more if you asked. Yeah. And so the, con 
the guy's dealing with was trying to claim that God only gave those wives to King David so he could protect, not to be like his additional wives. The context doesn't fit. Saul's getting, or David's getting criticized for having sex with an already married woman. The, the rebuttal to that is not, I gave you a bunch of ladies to take care of, just to take care of for the heck of it. So the context doesn't fit what the claim is. The context wouldn't make sense. And in, in the same way, uh, the claim that these statements, like God has infinite knowledge, and it's some sort of weird abstract data, data set, where, where in context points to that reading? I don't think it fits. I don't think it's, <laughs> it's going to work. Provisionalist, the provisionist perspective says, I'm here. He's always excited when, when, uh, when, when it's like the dead of morning in New Zealand, and then he's able to pop on to one of these live showings. Infinite literally means limitless. I don't know what time it is in New Zealand. I just assume it's opposite of whatever it is here. Or endless. For God to have infinite knowledge, then, we must recognize that his knowledge cannot be added on to. Therefore, God would have... All right, so let's say you have an infinite data set. Your infinite data set is X plus two, um, and you could start at zero and limit infinity. Infinity is your limit. You could add data points to that infinite data set. So it, these claims just don't add up. It's just, it's just weird claims. Have to know. Oh, it's like afternoon there. Wow, this is not, we're not we're not too uh, far distance. It's like a five hour distance. What? Where are you? Everything, even the future, because if he was ever adding knowledge, even if it was knowledge of the future, if he was ever adding on to it, then the Bible couldn't say his knowledge is infinite. Only finite things can be added onto by definition. The Bible wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. You could have an infinite set and then add uh, points to it. Okay, so a set of all prime numbers is an infinite set. You add a decimal number, so uh, the set of prime numbers plus 0.5. That extra data, that extra data point, and so no, these these are false claims. This is not how infinities work. Bible also says on multiple occasions that God knows all things. The disciples confess that they realize Christ knows all things. John sixteen thirty, and this is in the direct context of Jesus predicting their future persecution. Christopher Gear says the Dane Cook cap got me. Uh oh, hopefully he's not a fan. I said some very disparaging things about Dane Cook. Worst comedian to ever live. Worse than females. ...to them and how they will receive the Holy Spirit in the future. After he tells them all these things, they say, we know you know all things. Peter also confesses that Christ knows all things, John 21, 17. And in 1 John 3, 20, we hear the same words, that God knows all things. On top of this, Paul teaches us in Colossians 2, 3, that all knowledge and wisdom is hidden in Christ. The authors of scripture do not qualify this usage of the word all. The way they use it is simple and straightforward. All means all. Okay, does God know things that don't exist? Does he know that there's an infinite amount of purple unicorns invading the United States as we speak? No, so the, the word all, even in his system, is qualified to some extent. And so this is another leap to, like, trust me, we're taking the language literally. Um, don't don't care about our exceptions. God can't know nothings, which is actually the claim of dynamic omniscience, that God can't know nothings. And so God does have infinite knowledge. God does know all things, all true propositions as they come into existence. God knows. 
it's it's the same type of uh, limits and qualifications that he gives. You're just disagreeing at where to draw the line, at what point to add the limitation. He says, oh, it can't be like nothings that are non-existent. Oh, the, the open theist says that too. But then he adds a qualification. It can't be something that all becomes existent at some point, then is added to God. It, they're, they're, they're just specu uh, speculation, speculative claims on his part. He's not giving us a real distinction between his belief and what normal neo-Molinism believes. Also, and this is very important to highlight, in Scripture, God speaks of his foreknowledge of the future as one of the key, chief, and defining characteristics of his deity. This is one of those attributes and characteristics which sets him over and above all false gods and over all humans and over all creatures. We read in Isaiah 41, 22 through 23, of God mocking, deriding, and chastising the false idols because they cannot predict the future. They are clueless about the events to come. Hear these words of the Lord and hear the sarcasm. Okay, so this is one of those times that I was talking about earlier when the entire narrative is rewritten to get this like weird connotation. They they really want Isaiah 40 to be about some sort of trivia contest. Whoever knows the most trivia, they're the winner. They win Jeopardy. It's it's like double Jeopardy or something and and God gets the bonus points and then he he becomes the winner. I think I got that meme that mocks it where it has Yahweh as one of the Jeopardy people, then Amun-Ra, and then like Zeus, and then they have little scoreboards. It's like, this is the God of Calvin. This is what they think is happening in Isaiah 40. Whoever is giving the most trivia answers is the correct God. But if you read it, it's, it's absolutely not about that whatsoever. It's about God says what he's going to do. God does it. And in that way, you should know that God, Yahweh is the true God because he can accomplish the things he says he's going to do. It's not this after the fact at, at the reasoning. It's not like Zeus saying, oh, yeah, you know that flood like five years ago? I did that. Ha, what do you say to that? No, Yahweh says, I'm going to send you into captivity. Then he does it. Then after it's done, he says, look, I said I was going to do it, and I did it. That's what's going on there. It's not a trivia contest. It's not about this abstract knowledge of propositions. That's not what's going on. That's not the point. It, it makes it makes the narrative not function well. As we talked about with that that uh, King David example with the wives, the narrative does not make sense in light of this new reading. Sarcasm even in his voice. No, yeah. Christopher Greer points out that ancient people uses other people's definitions, which <laughs> I remember James White mocking me for in the Isaiah debate, pointing to similar phrases describing Yahweh, which described the other deities. And my point was not uh, not Yahweh's comparable to these other deities. My, my point was just using normal reading comprehension, zero people read this text like a Calvinist. Like normal, competent people reading the text do not come to Calvinist conclusions with the same phrases. And this could be illustrated very, very easily by going to a source that we just don't have emotional investment in. We read it, we're just like, okay, yeah, that's what's going on there. Got pixels of light in the house. And uh, Jeff Bailey, <laughs> uh-oh, uh-oh. Drew McLeod says, I really used to like Dane Cook back in the 2005-ishes. Oh, oh no. Uh, go, go review your life decisions. 
re reevaluate your past. God says to the false idols, let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods, do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed. And that the active element is the key. Accomplish what you say you're going to do, or else, the, or else the text doesn't make sense. And again, uh, I think our friend here, uh, this guy might be a Molnist, but Dan's friend is a Calvinist, and I think they were using this. And the whole point of this is that God's trying to convince people in real time to worship him as opposed to other deities. The people are the judges. God's acting as a defendant and putting himself in an inferior position, which, which screws up all their metaphysics. They, they don't like what's going on here. Uh, who was I talking to? There's, there's someone I was having an interaction with. I said, uh, yeah, is, is God putting himself... Yeah, is he is he uh, subjecting himself to Israel as judge? And they're like, oh no, that can't be <laughs> because it, because because God, of course, can't gain anything from outside himself. He doesn't. He's not need anything, and no one could be over him. But uh, in the Bible, often that's the case where God subjects himself to other individuals. It, it doesn't work with their metaphysics. And terrified, God is saying, "Hey, if you're truly a God, tell us what's going to happen in the future, because God Himself can do that." And God tells us he can do this. He tells us he has this future knowledge. Here, Isaiah 42, 9. So let's let's think about uh, Jeff Bailey says that, yeah, all he needs, all God needs, is one thing to show him above wooden idols in this argument. Yeah, so when a Calvinist approaches the Bible, anytime they they find little phrases that are useful for their theology, they turn it into metaphysics. Is is God in Isaiah 40 through 48, is he saying, let me outline the properties of deity that are metaphysical absolutes. No, that's, that's, not, that's not what's going on there. He's just like, I could defeat these false gods. I'm superior to them. I'm the true God. It's not about outlining properties of deity. It's about power struggles and power contests. As you see throughout the Bible, God struggles with the false gods. God overcomes the false gods. It's not like if one person defeats the other, then the first guy's like God or something like that. It's it's not what's going on. It's not metaphysics. They're not laying down metaphysical systems. They are not looking for deity-making properties. They are showing God in contests, struggling against other gods, and coming out victorious. Not God-making properties. And of course, they wanted about God-making properties. That's that's their bread and butter. It has to be metaphysics. Why? Uh, it's a after the fact reasoning. Well, it kind of says something that kind of is like my theology, and therefore it's a proof text for my theology. God says, "Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Before they happen, God tells us of them." Yeah. Or consider Isaiah forty-eight three. I have declared the former things from the beginning, and they went forth out of my mouth, and I showed them. I did them suddenly, and they came to pass. Or one more, Isaiah forty-eight five. Therefore, I told you these things long ago, before they happened. I announced them to you so that you could not say, "My images brought them about," or "My wooden image and metal God ordained them." God is. Are you guys looking at the cinder blocks in the back? It feels like he's like in a in a college dorm. Like when I was in college, we had these cinder block walls and it's very bare and, and very constricting. It was almost I had a roommate, I had a Chinese roommate who hated me because uh I always accidentally locked him out of the bathroom when he'd 
he'd go to shower. And then I never knew he was going to shower. So I'd leave the room and I'd lock it up. And I'd get like these nasty notes when I came back. Chris, you listen here. But I don't know. So Dane, um, I hope he's like in college or something. Because if, if that's his house, that'd be kind of a lonely existence. Saying what separates me from all these false gods? What is one chief and key way you can know me as different than these false gods? God is saying, I know the future. That's one of my defining characteristics. And Jesus also uses this as one of his defining characteristics to present his deity to the disciples and to us. Jesus says in John 13, 19, that Christopher Greer makes a very good point. God knowing what he's going to do is different from knowing what others are going to do. That is absolutely a, a very spectacular point here. Isaiah 40 through 48 is not about like actions of other individuals. It's actions of God himself. They will. He tells the disciples all these things beforehand about his betrayal and oh. his passion and all that. Drew says we're old. I don't think Drew ever answered me. I said, I think you're between 20 and 40. And then like he, he never told me how old he actually was. But he's got a kid now, so he's got to be at least upper 30s, low 40s, I'm guessing. I have no idea. And he says that he tells them these things beforehand so that they will believe he is the Messiah. Jesus says in John 14, 29, I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe. Why should they believe that he's the Lord? Why should they believe that he's the Messiah? Because he's telling them the future before the future happens. Another important consideration is that the Bible contains many many, many God-given prophecies in which God details precise human actions. Well, Okay, so let's let's look at his uh, previous argument. His argument was that God claims to know these future things. God doesn't actually claim in there to know all future events. It doesn't say that he knows them uh, inevitably, fatalistically, that all the future is known with exactitude. That's not even about deity making properties. And so that argument also doesn't hold up. Okay, remember, he started with an argument from infinity, which is a not, not a true argument. Data sets that are infinite can have extra data points added to them. That's People do that with infinities all the time. Uh, God's knowledge is infinite. Yeah, um, that's what open theists often claim as well. God knows all true truths. Yep, that's what open theists claim as well. And there's no differentiation between his belief right now and a neo-Molinist. Just throw that out there. Well, in advance, and I'm just going to list a handful for you, but there are literally thousands upon thousands of these. God talks about how, uh, through Samuel, how Saul will encounter men who will be holding certain objects. God says uh, what these men will say to Saul, that they will even salute him. This is in 1 Samuel 10, 1 through 7. God prophesies the historical conquest of men like Cyrus and knows him by name even before he's born. Isaiah 45. All right. So now his argument goes something like this. God knows all future events exhaustively because one time in the Old Testament, he was able to predict what people were going to say the very same day it happened. And also in Isaiah, he is able to tell us the name of a baby presumably, if you're going with uh, Isaiah wrote Deutero-Isaiah, presumably hundreds of years before the actual event, the baby is born. So there, there seems to be a disconnect there. I, I would not jump from knowing a baby's name 200 years in advance and uh, jumping from there to whoever that person is who knows that baby's name. 
has exhaustive knowledge of all future events. I, I, I don't, I don't think that's a rational, logical jump. There's just so many other explanations of these things. I, I'm sure we could go find a Nostradamus type prophecy that someone made, which got a name right. It doesn't mean Nostradamus is uh, some sort of psychic who knows all of world history. I think I was watching that Nostradamus special back when, back in like college or something. I don't know. And they're like, oh, Nostradamus was so prescient. He talked about people hiding in a line under the cities. And that came true in World War II when people were hiding in the subway systems during the bombing. It's like, I don't know. That's a, that's a little bit of a stretch. I don't think, I, I think, I think just a, a statement vaguely lined up with with some other event in history at some point, uh, which is bound to happen anyway. You make a prophecy that's not really time-limited or anything like that, it's bound to be, quote-unquote, fulfilled in some manner. But his argument, his his uh, evidence does not lead to his conclusions. And so what he wants is kind of a holistic. Yeah, you look at all these little pieces of evidence, and our model explains all these pieces of evidence. which. It's not a terrible argument if you're going to be the anti-open theist side, but it just doesn't logically follow. 5-1. God knows the movements of Israel's military enemies in advance. Jeremiah 37, 6 through 10. Jesus has knowledge of Judas's future betrayals. John 6, 64. God had prophesied even the amount of money that this dirty job would uh, pay for the betrayer in Zechariah 11, 12 through 13. Did, did he? Uh, I... Th- I, did we ever in this podcast go through the disconnect between the amount of money that was paid for Judas and the Old Testament references? They're, they're like stitched together from multiple places. And so it's it's very awkward to try to tie the amount of money as some sort of prophecy fulfillment. If If I haven't done that, I'll have to go through that in detail. And it seems to me that you know sometimes the bible fudges numbers a little bit to make them line up it seems to me that maybe people are are doing an illusion rather than an accurate count of the money in order to make things line up that's probably what's happening there but if even if it's exact it is a stitched together reference to well to i don't we might have actually went through it in the in the cross examination here where i talked about the disconnects of those prophecies Jesus prophesies his own death and resurrection and the people involved in handing him over and arresting him. Mark 8, 31 through 33. He prophesies Peter's denials and the timing of them being before a cock crows. John 18, 13 through 27. Jesus prophesies Rome's political movements and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Again, those are just a small batch of thousands upon thousands of examples. Yeah, uh, I would like to go over, maybe I'll pull it up or talking, but there is a post that somebody made on prophecy exactness. And I reposted it on God is Open, which talked about the type of prophecy that's actually given in the Bible. The exactitude actually tells us something about the latitude that a prophecy has and how likely it is that the giver actually knows the future. So if if someone's prophesied to be uh, born in a specific year that's different than in a specific year, on a specific day, at a specific time, at a specific place. How loose and how vague is that prophecy? And what does that tell us about prophecy? I'll try to pull it up as he's talking. But his argument is, here's a bunch of fulfilled prophecies. Therefore, God knows the future exhaustively. You cut out all the other options. You cut out God being able to do things. 
That's that's the open theist answer. Yeah, we think God is competent and capable, and he could do things. Uh, they're like, uh, how could he stop uh, Bethlehem from not getting wiped out of existence by an invading army? Yeah, God could do things. <laughs> God can do things. I'll hit play. I'll find that article. That could be mentioned. God also speaks of having knowledge of things that to our human perception seem random, but they're not random at all because God knows them uh, well in advance. He knows the words that humans will speak before they speak them. Psalm 139.16. He knows the specific individual before he or she is born, knows the their DNA and knows them completely before they're born. Jeremiah 1.5. He even knows how lots will fall in the laps of men. Proverbs 16.33. But here's what I think is most important. God knowing the future is actually important to the message of the gospel. You see, in open theism, the cross of Christ was not plan A. It was one of many potential plans. The future was open. Christ didn't have to die even before the foundations of the earth in the open theist system. But we know from Scripture, the Bible tells us repeatedly that the cross was always God's plan. It's the pinnacle of all history. It's the climax of redemption story. And it was planned even before times eternal. It was the ultimate expression of God's grace, love, and justice. This is what history is all about. That's why the cross split time into from before Christ and in the year of our Lord now. So this argument here seems to be like a, a tack, a tug on emotional heartstrings. Open theists don't believe the cross was eternally faded from before time began. Something like that. Like, yeah, uh, God genuinely wanted... Uh, Adam and his descendants to have a love relationship with him forever without any sort of fall. Yes, it's 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 not like spectacular. It's not like that's a big shocker. That's God's plan A was to live in harmony with people. And his plan A is accomplished at the end of Revelation, which he comes back and lives with man forever. And so this this whole middle part, that that is the contingency. That's not the goal. That was not the plan. God is trying to live in communion with man forever. End of Revelation. He, he, God lives with man. And so, yeah, um, this whole emotional heartstrings, oh, what if, what if the cross never happened because people never sinned? <laughs> yeah, that's good. That'd, that'd be fine. That'd be good. What the cross never happened, as uh, people point out, maybe Israel repents fully. Jesus comes back. Everyone flocks to Jesus. They repent fully. Does the cross need to happen then? Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. Uh, you, you could have debates about that, but it, let's pretend it is subverted. No one's going to like pull their hair out and be like, where's my cross? It's, 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 it's going to be irrelevant. There's going to be a mass repentance. There's going to be a reformation of the world, a return to God. It, it would happen. No, no, one would, no one would cry about it. It's only because the cross happened. Yeah, this this happens with all prophecy. It's only because a prophecy came true that that prophecy is now near and dear to their heart, and uh, they can't imagine that prophecy not coming true. It's a it's a post ex post facto ex post facto reasoning. If the prophecy came true, it's proof positive that God knows the future entirely. If the prophecy didn't come true, oh, that it was just a conditional prophecy to begin with. God never had any intent to to get that complete and. Um, definitely that doesn't falsify our view of God knowing the future exhaustively. Yeah, there, it's, it's an unfalsifiable belief.
So listen to this. God had planned for the sacrifice of Christ to be the pinnacle and climax of history, even before times eternal. Second Timothy 1, 8 through 10. God had chosen to save believers in Christ and by the shed blood of Christ before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 4 through 7. God had foreordained before the foundation of the world what has now been revealed to you. First Peter 1, 20. And God who cannot. So I think we went over the Ephesians verses in detail, which. There's a lot of dependent clauses. I think that actually came up in the cross-examination here. There's a lot of dependent clauses, and you have to do a lot of strange things with those dependent clauses to claim that the cross itself was planned before the foundation of the world. I don't think that's what before the foundation of the world is modifying. I think it's modifying the idea of this Christ, uh, some sort of messianic figure some sort of access to God, maybe something like that. I don't think it's the cross. I don't think it's the blood either. I don't think it modifies that. There's a lot of dependent clauses and we can't just assume what they modify. A lie promised before eternal times, the gospel message now revealed and preached, Titus 1, 1 through 3. This shows exhaustive knowledge of the plan of salvation even before the world was made. This shows the gospel message that would be preached even in God's mind before the world would, was made, the election of believers before the world was made. And it does indeed entail that God had knowledge of the fall and of sin and the necessity of redemption before the world was made. And so to conclude, I submit to you. Jeff writes, was it always the plan before the foundation of the world or was it to have a bride or both? I think it was, I think the original plan was to have a people group who loved and served and communed with God was the original plan. And I think that's what the Ephesians verse is getting at, rather than the cross and the blood being the focus of before the foundation of the world. I think it actually uses pro there rather than oppo. Remember in the Revelation verses, it's going to say oppo. It's going to be using the since terminology. And then Ephesians, I believe it's going to be using the pro. But it, they're modifying different things. In the Revelations, it's names that have not been written since the foundation of the world. Since the world started until now, those names have not been written. You today that God knows past, present, and future perfectly. God does not learn. Indeed, no man can give him counsel. Isaiah 40, 13 through 14. God just knows. He has eternally known all things. He eternally knew my opening to this debate even before he created the world. In fact, Acts 15, 18 puts it simply and sublimely. No, no. So Pixels writes, uh, plan A, plan P, plan B is a dichotomy fabricated by people who need the emotional appeal against an open future. God's plan A has been that he has, has creatively, uh, <laughs> has been that he has creatively free moral beings and that includes possibilities. Yeah, so let's say that you're in an argument with someone and they got kids and you say, oh, you believe that your kids were contingency, that that they didn't have to exist, that you might have lived in a world without your kids? Uh, you're, you're trying to pull, pull on people's emotional feelings to try to be, because you want them to you, you, you want them to believe that their emotions mirror reality. Yeah, guess what? Our, our facts don't care about our feelings. Our emotions don't affect the reality of situations the cross easily could have been a contingency and when you pointed out that uh you pointed out to them that jesus thought the cross was a contingency that he could subvert it and he does multiple times they have like connective fits they're like oh they, they don't know how to respond and then they they try to reverse the words of jesus i think as our last podcast we covered that in which jesus says that 
he could call on legions of angels to come save him. Uh, but then how will scripture be fulfilled? They reverse it. He can't have done that because then scripture couldn't have been fulfilled. Yeah, Jesus is looking for opportunities to fulfill scripture, not vice versa. And unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. And one last brief comment. I will say that I think the danger of open theism is that they fall into the trap of Psalm 50, 21. God says in frustration, you Sam writes, Ar Arminian dictionary, no man could give him counsel. God cannot learn. I must have missed uh, Dane here talking about that. But it, it is very interesting that very much within the Bible, the same language is used of normal people as is, is used of God. So there's phrases that say, who can compare to God? Who compares to God? But then there's a Jerusalem and it says, what city compares to you? What it means is that it's a class above. It doesn't mean that there's no comparison in any sense, in any terms, at any level. What it means is that you're a class above the nor. I don't know anything about football. Let's let's take John Elway. I'm sure he's like long retired or something. I don't know anything about football. If I said, who could compare to John Elway? Or O.J. Simpson, my favorite football player. I know nothing about football. OJ, who can compare to O.J. Simpson? And then you say no one. That just means he's a cut above. He's he's uh, he's better than everyone else. It doesn't mean that he's in a uncomparable class in all respects. And that's typically how the language is used. But they want to be metaphysics, so they'll take little phrases like that. It's all about their metaphysics. So it's all about negative theology rather than how normal language functions. You thought I was just like you. Open theists make God more like a man by saying he has no knowledge of the future, just like a man would have no knowledge of the future. And with that, I would like to pass it to my brother. <laughs> uh, uh, that's the Matt Slick thing. Oh, these open theists, their view of God is just like the Mormons. Uh, have you heard about these Mormons here? We don't like those Mormons. It's like they're making God just like man. Those open theists, they make God like man. It's like, okay, oh, we, we can read the Bible and God made man in his image. That, it has to mean something. And so if we're making God in the image of man, you know, that 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 doesn't seem as terrible as you're trying to make it sound. If If man is made in the image of God, you should be able to reverse that to some effect to try to get to what the creator looks like. But Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. There's got to be some correlation. There's There's got to be some overlap where you could go from the thing created. I'm not claiming Jesus is created. But you could go from this one thing that's in the image of another and then go back. I, I there, There's got to be some correlation. Like if I draw a picture of the Mona Lisa and show it to you and say, this is a picture of the Mona Lisa, you should, in some respect, be able to go back. It, it's probably not going to be full. It's gonna, There's probably going to be errors. You're probably not going to get the full picture. But there's got to be some overlap. you got to get some sort of gist of what that original picture, what the Mona Lisa actually looks like by going back in the image that I created of that picture. There's got to be something. You can't just dismiss it. Oh, that image of the Mona Lisa that you drew? Um, you now you're trying to make a Mona Lisa in that image. That tells us nothing about the original Mona Lisa. That's not how it works. The opposite is true. Dan Chapa. 
Thank you. Um, so scripture specifically predicts that Israel is going to be in Egypt uh, for 400 years. It predicts uh, Judah's uh, captivity for 70 years. It predicts the destruction of Jeroboam's altar um, 300 years in advance, specifically indicating that Josiah by name is the king that will carry out this destruction in 1 Kings 13. Isaiah foretells Cyrus by name that he's going to defeat the Assyrians, allow the uh, Israelites to return to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple. All that's 200 years in advance uh, of Cyrus's birth. Obviously, there's some predictions about Christ, his birth in Bethlehem, the slaughter of the infants, the flight to Egypt, um, Christ's uh, crucifixion, the nail-pierced hands, the casting of Lot for his clothes, that his bones won't be broken, that he's going to be buried in the tomb of a rich man, um, and that he's going to be uh, in between. All right. I, I found that article that I'm trying to pull up. So maybe I could remove this, and then I could try to reshare my screen. I don't know if that's going to work. It just says stop screen. Okay, I'll stop screen. It might. There we go. Now I'll just reshare again. Now share screen. Okay, that seems to work. So let's go take a look at this window and look at this article. Blogger explains why vague prophecy points to open theism. And so uh, look at the strength of prophecy. A king will be born. Maybe that's the most loose prophecy that you could to be fulfilled. It can happen anywhere at any time, um, any place, anyone. A king will be born in Israel. Oh, now you're getting a little bit more specificity. A king will be born in Bethlehem. That's even more specific. King will be born in Bethlehem in this date range. Okay, let's keep scrolling down. We, we kind of get the the sense of this that uh, loose prophecy. The looser prophecy is that the it, the more open theism is going to be true, right? Because uh, it, it's not detailed. It's not the detail you'd expect in uh, a model of the world in which God knows all future inexactitude unfalsifiably. So he says, prediction 10 is stronger than prediction one. And prediction 10 is a king named Jesus will be born in a manger in Bethlehem in 4 BC on the evening of March 31st uh, to the parents, Joseph and Mary says it's stronger than prediction one because you have you have to know mo much more about the future to be right about 10 than you do have have to be about one specifically is not the only measure of the strength of prophecy however the amount of such prophecies also figures into the calculus it could be the case that one prediction of value four is stronger than two predictions of value three but that would be depend on the scale okay so scrolling down i contend that the individual old testament prophecies concerning jesus's first advent fall in the two to three range very loose prophecy in the range, imperfect scale of my example, but they do not reach to the strength of four. This leads me to rate the overall strength of the biblical prophecy, taking into account how uh, the quantity as well as the quality in two to three or the three-ish range. This is fairly low. Premise two, this is his second premise after setting up the scale. Open theism provides a better model of why the Bible prophecy would have a strength two or three and not a nine and 10. If the future is open, then there is a lot of historical wiggle room that God that God gives freedom. Given this freedom and given God's unthwartable sovereign plans, then we wouldn't expect biblical prophecy to be much higher than two or three. Open theism is often compared to a chess game in which a grandmaster will always beat a novice. Even though the grandmaster does not know in advance what moves the novice will make, the grandmaster's plan of victory is assured. God's plans are assured, even though the individual moves might not be known in advance. The Grandmaster will win, even though we don't know 
that it's by capturing the rook and forcing checkmate on move 14, say, in other words, the reason the strength of biblical prophecy is low is that open theism is true. Look at the vagueness of open theism, or look at the vagueness of uh, prophecy. Does it point to a Calvinist or an Arminian model of the world, or does it point to an open theist model of the world? God will bring about an apocalyptic event in which he kills the wicked and blesses the righteous. What is it? How specific is that? If, if you find dates in the Bible that change or have flexibility, all that points to an open future. It gives God flexibility in carrying out his plans. As we point out in the debate, and I, I focus quite heavily on, God can raise new children of Israel from the rocks to fulfill some of these timeless prophecies. And those prophecies that uh, God's going to have a people group to himself, the vagueness is probably at scale one or two in this model. Vague prophecy points to open theism because it tells us God has options for fulfillment. So I'm going to go back to, uh, maybe I'm going to have to unshare and reshare. Uh, let's try doing that. But uh, go back to this video. So a lot of the prophecies that they are citing fall pretty low powered when we use that scale that we just talked about. And I think I point out in the debate that his time frames are off. It says uh, Israel will be in Egypt for 300 years is actually not 300 years, 315 years. Or you add the wandering in the desert. Maybe it's like 400 years. Maybe it's a lot quicker than that. But just the fact that the time frame's not absolute and flexible tells us a little some, bit of something about the prophecy and how prophecy works and functions. And it's in an open theistic way. So share screen, a Chrome tab, open theism debate, share audio. Hopefully we get audio back. We'll see. Two thieves. Um, Christ uh, foretells Peter's three denials, Peter's repentance after those three denials, Peter's death. God knows the full number of the days of our lives. Sam writes that their entire argument is that God knows things in the future, therefore he's omniscient. They should be consistent and apply that logic to human beings. That's one thing I think I brought to the whole open theist debate is kind of like this mocking like, yeah, humans know things about the future too. So by your standards, I'm omniscient. I had this big post in which I predicted things down to the minute because I said, I'm going to publish this blog post on this time and on this date, and you know, you could set up things that are scheduled to publish. So you, you don't have to, doesn't take very much work to be, have exact knowledge of the future, the time, place, and date, things like that. You can automate these things. It's, it's not too hard. It doesn't mean I'm an omniscient. And if their standard, that the standard they use to prove God's omniscience is a real standard, then they would have to, if to be consistent, say that I also am omniscient. And they're, they're not going to take that leap. Because once they're brought down to reality, once they're given practical examples of how their standards are arbitrary, arbitrary, idiosyncratic, and uh, just special pleading, just special pleading, um, then they, they backtrack and uh, you get a lot of hems and haws. It's kind of kind of fantastic, actually. Um, Daniel is full of prophecy, but just in Daniel chapter 11 specifically, um, Daniel prophesies in the first year of King Cyrus, uh, king of Persia, he predicts. Yeah, Jeff writes that it doesn't seem that God is really worried about precision down to the very specific small details. Yeah, you'll you'll find general prophecy um, that it, the thrust of prophecy is what matters rather than the individual details for fulfillment. <laughs> 
uh, you're, you're going to have a son and Emmanuel is going to be his name. Well, it could be Jesus. And that could be fulfillment of this um, quasi prophecy. It, it, the details don't, it doesn't matter as much as the thrust of what it's about, right? the three kings that'll come after Cyrus, followed by a fourth. Then the fourth king, who's likely Alexander the Great, um, dies young, and then his sons were murdered. Daniel predicts this, along with the fact that the kingdom would be divided into four parts. That's Daniel 11.4. And then um, he describes this, uh, predictively roughly 155 years of warfare between the uh, Seleucids and the Ptolemies, um, with specific focus given to the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. And... Um, the that he's the unrightful heir to that throne david uh writes that he's omniscient until i started wearing different shirt colors well i'm still wearing a black shirt see right, right there i just got a sweatshirt on over it's kind of cold in my basement ever and uh i don't know like the middle part of the house is pretty warm and then my my uh upper floor that's where all the heat goes so so all my kids live on the top floor except for a couple kids in the basement and then i live on the middle floor I come down here to get cold and freeze. I don't know. Um, specifically, you know, some people might say, well, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily include free will actions, but it actually specifically says that it does. In Daniel 11.36, it says, and the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak abominable things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for that which is decreed shall be done. Now think of Joseph and all his predictions, Isaiah, Daniel, Christ in the Olivet Discourse, the book of Revelation. Revelation 13.10 says, if anyone is to be uh, taken care of. All right, uh, you, you heard it here first. I am predicting that the next U.S. president will be a narcissist. <laughs> you, you heard it here first, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see if that comes true, if my prophecy about a future free will actions, the, the president will be a narcissist and then he'll make executive orders that are unconstitutional uh, that he wills to do. He'll, he'll just, he'll just make these executive orders unconstitutionally and they'll be carried out by the government. Those are my predictions about the next U S president. Uh, you heard it here first. Let's see how omniscient I am about future free will actions. Uh, well, I'll go, I'll go so far as the next president after him will also be a narcissist also do executive orders that are unconstitutional and erode our liberties and freedoms. I'll go so far as to make that prediction too. I just predicted the next two presidents. We'll see how omniscient I am about the future rulers of this country. Captive to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain by the sword, with the sword he must be slain. That's a Hebrew idiom for certainty, that repetition formula that's a, a, about certainty. Think of all the other prophecies in Revelation. Think of the two witnesses, Armageddon, the beast, the satanic rebellion. Um, think of uh, in Deuteronomy that prophets whose predictions did, didn't come true were to be executed. And then, of course, we have the uh, the fact that uh, God cites prophecy as proof of his divinity. Um, Dane covered Isaiah, but just to touch on Isaiah 43 um, and 9, it says, Which of their idols have ever foretold such things? Which can predict what will happen tomorrow? Where are the witnesses of such predictions? Who can verify they spoke the truth? Let me repeat that last part. Who can verify that they spoke the truth? That should be our standard in, in, in determining... So a general rule of thumb, it's not a it's not a rule that's always strictly enforced and it has to be true, but a rule of thumb is 
if your opposition can say with a straight face your argument and that they believe it, it's not a good argument. Like William Lane Craig versus James White. James White's like, let me read you this verse. And then he reads a verse about uh, Joseph's brothers doing what they will and God doing what he wills. And and William Lane Craig's like, yeah, I agree with that verse. It's like, I, I, I could just state, yep, I agree. God does what he wills and, and the people are doing what he wills and God does takes their actions and makes it for his purpose. Yeah, I believe that. Uh, you don't have a real argument. You know, sometimes um, it doesn't, that the rule doesn't hold true. Like if a Calvinist says, yeah, my model accounts for the entire Bible teaching open theism uh, because my model says the entire Bible will teach open theism, but there's going to be a secret subsystem in which Calvinism is true. Then it doesn't work. You, you, you got to, you got to throw the red flag at some point. But generally speaking, um, yeah, open theists say, yeah, God can do things. God can predict things. God is knowledgeable. God is capable. And and uh, God can accomplish his will. Uh, truth and prophecy. In contrast, in verse 12, it's, uh, the Lord says, it is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed. Um so there's really no way to explain these things other than God knows no way. exhaustively. There's no other um, integrated system of beliefs that's going to get uh, to the network of all the choices that are necessary to fulfill all these prophecies that came true. Um, and the thing is, if one future free action can be foreknown, then they're possible to know. And if they're possible to know, then God knows them all. Otherwise, his understanding is not infinite, like the scripture declares. So what about the... Okay, so this argument... Is interesting. Um, he says that if one future free action is knowable, then all of them are knowable. Is that true? Does that does that logically follow that if one's knowable, then all of them are knowable? I I don't think that holds true. I can know what I'm going to eat tomorrow. That doesn't mean I'm I know what I'm going to eat ten years from now. So there there is a range of knowable things, and and the way that those things are knowable. It's probably not how he's trying to use the word knowledge. It's He's probably trying to use knowledge in the unfalsifiable sense that God has access to the propositional value of truth statements in the future, which is not the knowledge I'm talking about when normally we know the future and when God knows the future, when God says in Jeremiah 18 that I won't do what I thought to do. He had knowledge of something and then it was a falsifiable knowledge that he could override and say, I'm going to reverse what I knew I was going to do. You know, that's the type of knowledge we're talking about here. It's not this fatalistic propositional knowledge. The open theist claim that they take the straightforward reading of Old Testament narratives. In some sense, in narrative theology doesn't work that way. You can't uh, take an isolated detail outside of the whole picture. And here's what I mean. Think of the book of Esther, right? So we, uh, as we... Yeah, this was actually an interesting argument during the debate. So the book of Esther doesn't mention God at all. There's a Greek Esther. So you could pull up uh, the text of Greek Esther which actually adds a very long prayer to God within the text of es Esther. But the normal Esther that we find in our Bibles that are, is not Greek Esther. I, maybe it's in Catholic Bibles you're going to find the Greek Esther translation, or you could just Google it, and it's uh, it's from like a Greek text that add, adds the extended prayer. But the normal book of Esther doesn't talk about God. And so it's a very interesting argument that he argues here that Esther is proof positive of God working all things. When God's not even mentioned, I might be willing to grant that, yeah, it is uh, implicit 
implicit that God's hands at work in making these things happen. But again, that's 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 normal open theism. God does stuff. God works with people. God is involved in the world. God is involved in the world in ways in which we don't understand. We're not familiar with. We we don't have access to. But God is working throughout. That's normal open theism. We move through the story. We share in the twists and turns and the drama and the exaltation and the suspense and all the excitement that goes through the story. But when we look back at the whole story, at the whole narrative, that's when we understand what God was doing all along and all the little dif uh, different details. And that's the way narrative theology works. So let's take a look at the uh, classic open theist proof text and put it back into its narrative to see how it fits. So let's take Moses's intercession. Um, so this is after the golden calf incident and Moses uh, does intercede and it's a very dramatic moment. It actually seems scary for us that all this is going on, right? And let's take uh, some specific details in Exodus 32.10. Now therefore let me alone that my anger may burn hot against them. This is God talking to Moses and I may consume that them and in order that I may make you a great nation. And then in verse 14, after Moses intercedes, the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken to bring about his people. So that's a classic open theistic proof text. Um, but this judgment that God gives is contingent on Moses not interceding and the people having not yet repented. It's an appropriate attitude when those things haven't happened yet. Yeah. So how do you have contingencies in a world when all propositions are non-falsifiable? Contingencies, that's just a word. Uh, so what they do in Arminianism, in Calvinism, is make up these ad hoc categories that have no real definitions. There's a whole debate on that. God has opened just recently about is an option that can never materialize an actual option. Let's say that uh, I have a random number generator, one through 100. Um, is 101 an actual option for that generation? Or if we know that 99 would never be hit is 99 actual option in this random number number generator. If you know unfalsifiably that this would will never occur, never materialize unfalsifiably, or if you knew unfalsifiably what uh, sequence of numbers the random number generator would generate, is it even a random number generator? And so words start to lose meaning um, it, within these debates. They'll say something is contingent although they believe something's unfalsifiable. They say things are options, although there's no possible way that those options will ever materialize. There's no probability that those options will ever materialize. Words lose meaning. But the command that's given to Moses is directly connected with the purpose clause, that my uh, wrath may burn. Therefore, it's an offer to Moses, and it's contingent upon his response, and it's an invitation for Moses to res respond and be part of the story. Um, now, God knows the outcome uh, because um, Moses was a Levite. We see that in Numbers 14, and the kingship had been given to Judah. So it's not really an option for God to wipe out everybody except Moses or even Moses himself because uh, Moses offers his life. Unless God could do something like raise new children of Abraham from the rocks. The kingship of Judah, I think that was brought up in this debate. And they're like, oh, how can he make this claim if uh, he didn't plan on King David? And he actually was uh, intending to give Saul the line. Well, guess what? From the prophecy of Judah up until David, there was not a ruler of Judah sitting on the throne. So right there, that invalidates their pretend prophecy. And so they, they got to do something with that. There's, there's long stretches of time when no one sat on the throne for Judah. 
It's not a prophecy. It's a claim by a dying patriarch to his son, foreshadowing rulership that doesn't materialize till centuries later and then unmaterializes with uh, with the dissolution of Israel. Um, so the, this text, for starters, in no way presents Yahweh as proposing evil only to be restrained by Moses. And the reason why we know that for sure is in Genesis 15, God tells Abraham, um, so after God has given Abraham some promises, he uh, says to split the um, some animals in two, and then a flame passes uh, between them. And uh, he says uh, in Hebrews 6, it says that God uh, made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater. He swore by himself, saying that he'll bless them. And by two immutable things, which is impossible for God to lie, we have the same consolation. So um, Moses was given a test of choosing God or um, himself. And but God knew this intention, and by repenting, it's not through God learning new information. Because if he if he wasn't, literally, God is putting his own reputation, his promises on the line, even his own life on the line. So there's no way that's that's the case that he's learning new information. Okay, so let, let's assume all that's true. Okay, so let's assume that if God killed all of Israel except for Moses and started a new line, that was God actually threatening deicide. We we don't just reject that with our emotions, right? Oh, deicide's not possible, so that's not an option. Okay, that's an option we, we need to consider as a possibility. Just as with all those weird assumptions that are not even present. How about God raising new children of Abraham from the rocks? Could God kill all of Israel and raise new children of Levi from the rocks? I would say yes, uh, that is a possible solution. Could he build a new Levite clan? That's a, that's a possibility. There's things that God can do that uh, our friend here, Dan, doesn't seem to have considered. It's basically this false dichotomy. Either uh, open theism is false, or uh, it's it's uh, or or this this thing couldn't happen. This was this is false. Okay, so let's let's think about this. The narrative has God becoming angry, trying to send Abraham away. Uh, try to send Moses away. This is this case. Uh, Abraham also incurs God, God's wrath when he's arguing for the number of people in Sodom. And Moses also courts God's wrath multiple times when he convinces God not to send him as God's mouthpiece. God really wanted uh, to send Moses as his mouthpiece. And then Moses kept complaining and God's like, fine, I'm going to send your brother instead. And he's really mad at him. And uh, then he seeks to kill him right after that for not circumcising his son. And then we get on to Mount Sinai, where God's wrath is burning hot against Israel. And he says, let me alone so I can destroy these people. Um, and later on, it says that God repented of what he said he was going to do. So did, did God ever actually intend this? Or was this play acting? Was this God being like a passive Spock person and just pretending to have emotions, per pretending to say things that he didn't really intend in order to elicit certain actions from Moses in this case that didn't change the people's actions or reactions that the people themselves didn't even repent in order for God to repent of the things that God said he was going to do. Moses goes down and he purges them. Then it turns out God's still angry and then God purges them with a plague again. The narrative just doesn't line up with this play acting. It's it's not it's not going to be play acting here. But uh his narrative I, it, I, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the narrative. We, that, that's been our theme tonight. Look at someone's explanation of a text, put it back in context, let the narrative play out, 
using their explanation and do the details line up? Is is uh, King <laughs> is King David being given by God all Saul's wives just to be dependents who just live on their own forever, or is or is God giving him Saul's wives to be extra additional wives? Which one lines up with the narrative about God saying, "Hey, I gave you all these wives, so you don't need to sleep with this other guy's married wife." Which one lines up with that narrative? Which one fits better? Does it fit better that God's play acting? Or does it uh, actually line up with the narrative better that God actually had emotions? And his emotions were curved by uh, by someone who knew God's character, knew God's temperament, talked to God face to face. I don't think Moses had Dan Carey's impression of who God was in his mind when he's arguing with God. If, if uh, Dan... Uh, I don't know what I just called him. Dan, uh, what's his last name? I think I just called him a random different name. Well, Dan, our friend Dan here. Um, if Dan was on Mount Sinai in, in the spot of Moses, would he actually make the same arguments, go through the same motions that Moses did? Or is it pretty evident that Moses has a fundamentally different perspective about God than, uh, than our friend Dan here? Rather, God. Um, the human situation has changed and God's uh, actions re respond in a fitting way to that changed situation. Oh, that's the end of our opening right there. So uh, fantastic. I, I don't think that they did a bad job. I think they actually did a pretty good job. And it's worth looking into their appeals, their intellectual arguments and uh, how they're structuring their arguments. They were not abrasive, which which is actually a huge benefit in these debates. Uh, it's If they were abrasive and if they were condescending, that would have made a very different tone for this debate. But it was reasoned. It was uh, very precise. They made their arguments well. There was some emotional heart heartstrings pulling, which uh, you... It does behoove them in a moderated debate to do it. So it's understandable that they're going to go there. But overall, I don't think they're bad arguments. I just think their arguments don't flow, especially every single argument they made, especially their argument that God knew specific things in the future. Therefore, God knows all things specifically into the future, infinitively into the future. I don't think that that argument materializes. It's a, it's a non sequitur. Yeah, I know what I'm going to eat tomorrow. Why? Because uh, I got all my spaghetti meat in my fridge right now. And if I don't use it tomorrow, it's going to go bad. And I'm going to have to throw it out. And I don't like wasting money. So I'm making spaghetti tomorrow night. That doesn't mean I know what I'm going to have a week from now. I can know things in the future. And uh, I cannot know other things in the future. And... Ah, uh, but uh, yeah, good times. Uh, I like this debate. We had a lot of fun on this debate. They're not bad people. And they did do a debate review that I did want to cover at some point. I don't know if it was going to be appropriate or not to do like so many debate review reviews or so many responses because there's so many, there's only so many times you could cover the same material. Uh, Christopher Greer writes, they did fine. They just believe in the same God as Antiochus. I think I said that right, Antiochus. Yeah, interesting. 
Interesting. All right. Um, questions, comments, put that down below or start a thread on the God is open Facebook group. Thank you for listening.